Oh, so I need to, so that doesn't include homework nine. Um, yeah, so that's not as meaningful. Okay, so we're gonna talk about another application of spectroscopy. Um, I guess a less conventional in the sense that uh, an application that doesn't just involve trying to figure out what chemical components are in a, in a liquid or something like that. Um, it's a little bit more, from my perspective, interesting. It's a little bit uh, less related to the uh, standard examples of spectroscopy. And that's working with uh, atoms in doing optics. Atoms or molecules. Using the matter waves from atomic wave packets as your interfering waves in interferometers, um, creating the equivalent of lasers, that is, sources of waves where you have multiple particles in the same quantum state. Um, so optical particles are photons, lots of particles in the same quantum state is the output of a laser. In matter, that's a Bose-Einstein condensate. We use a lot of the techniques of laser spectroscopy to get to a condensate. Um, so we'll talk about some of those methods and, and how, they, uh, how they're useful in doing this, this kind of frontier of physics work right now. So a lot of precision measurements are done through interferometry where you take multiple optical beams or a single optical beam and you split it and then you recombine those beams and you look for differences in the phase of the two beams that would come from some interaction with, with the environment. Okay, and that interaction could be passing through a material where you're trying to learn about the material. It may be reflecting off of a mirror where you're trying to learn about the position of the mirror. Um, and the device, the interferometer, basically tells you um, how much phase shift there is between the two beams. Okay, so two pi of phase corresponds to one wavelength. So in optical interferometry, when you go to shorter and shorter wavelengths, if you can measure the same phase shift, you get better and better resolution. Okay, so measuring the position of Measuring the position of a movable mirror, for instance, can be done in this way. You have a laser, you split it. This is a Michelson interferometer, where one beam reflects off of a fixed mirror, the other one reflects off of a mirror that can be moved. It may be that you can intentionally move this, it's on a translation stage, or it may just be mounted onto something that you're trying to measure the motion of. This could be a very sensitive optical um, geophone, essentially, measuring the position or the vibrations, seismic vibrations of this, this surface. Then these waves can add up constructively or destructively, depending on their phase relationship or anywhere in between. And so the difference between constructive and destructive interference is one of the beams moving an extra half a wavelength. So if this if this mirror moves back and forth by a quarter of a wavelength, the output intensity 
measured over here goes from being constructive interference to destructive. And so distance over which that happens is a quarter wavelength. Shorter wavelengths give you a finer scale. If you measure to a certain intensity change, that intensity change corresponds to a certain path length change. And the ability to resolve path length changes, whether they be physical or optical path length changes due to index of refraction variations, um, in some sense is limited by the wavelength. Okay, it's also limited by how small of an intensity you can measure, how small of a change in intensity. And if you can measure a smaller change in intensity, you can measure a smaller posi position change of that, that second mirror. So that's just a very basic example of why interferometry depends, or the sensitivity depends on the wavelength. So shorter and shorter wavelengths mean going from visible to ultraviolet, vacuum ultraviolet. And the problem you run into, at least with optical interferometers, is optics stop being transparent in the ultraviolet. Why is that? Someone have a simple explanation? Okay. Uh, slightly more than one word explanation, but yes, it's absorption. What's that? Why is it that lower wavelengths get absorbed more? Yeah. So, how does the energy in a lower wavelength compare to a higher wavelength? Higher energy. Typically, ionization energies would be you know, ultraviolet to visible. Um, so, if you have enough energy to ionize the sample, then there's a pretty good chance that that is going to be absorbed. There's, once the atom or molecule is ionized, you have a free electron and it doesn't, your energy level diagram, so you have a van der Waals attraction for a molecule, you've got these, these confined energy levels, and then at some point you have an energy level where the system is no longer confined. So energy is a function of position, say, between two, uh, two atoms make up a diatomic molecule. Low energies may or may not correspond to transitions from the ground state to an excited state. But the energy is high enough to ionize, then any possible energy that's greater than this ionization barrier is accessible because any excess energy just goes into kinetic energy of the, of the ion. Neil? So there was a proposal. You can probably figure out once I tell you the name of the proposal whether or not this was ever implemented at one point to build an X-ray laser. Uh, it was going to be in space. The idea was that it could shoot things down, essentially, or be a weapon. Right? It was an atom bomb pump X-ray laser. So it was never built. In order to pump an X-ray laser, uh, you always need to have pump photons or pump energies that are greater than the output energy. 
So, yeah, there you go. Atom bomb pumped X ray lasers have been theorized and <laughs> never built. Yes. 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 So that makes it even harder. That's another effect that makes it harder. Um, and the opposite is true. Infrared, further in the infrared, you get less and less effect from spontaneous emission. Crystals. Yeah. But what happens is uh, you blow up the laser. It's a single pulse laser. The system gets destroyed, or, or the proposed system would have been destroyed on its first pulse. So. Okay, so uh, what you do have that's at shorter wavelengths um, is matter waves. Right, so photons have a certain energy. The energy of a photon is h bar omega, or hf. And they have momentum, which we, don't, we haven't talked about as much. Uh, we mentioned it when we talked about phase matching in nonlinear interactions, and that was about it. But just like energy is h-bar times a temporal frequency, momentum is h-bar times a spatial frequency. So photons have energy and momentum. Matter has energy and momentum. Right? So if you wrote the matter, the, sorry, the momentum of matter as its mass and velocity, right, you can relate that to a k vector for the matter wave, the de Broglie wave. Right? So the atomic wave function is a wave function. It, it has a wavelength associated with it. And that wavelength is h over p. And so And so it's pretty easy to see that those wavelengths can be pretty small. Um, H is on the order of 10 to the minus 34. The momentum of a particle is its mass, which is on the order of 10 to the minus 27. That's kilograms and that's joule seconds. Times its velocity. So for a particle with a velocity on the order of 100 meters per second, 10 to the 2, I have 10 to the minus 25 in the denominator, 10 to the minus 34 in the numerator, something on the order of a nanometer. Neil, why are you laughing? Just wondering how you could estimate Planck's constant based on. No, no, no. So the wavelength of of, a, of an atomic particle, this is the mass of a proton or a neutron, at relatively low velocities, this is a thermal velocity, gives wavelengths that are two orders of magnitude less than optical waves, visible waves. 
So in theory, you should be able to do some high-precision interferometry with matter waves if you can figure out how to move the matter around and, and do all the anal analogs of this laser interferometer. What is your source for, for particles? Uh, a laser is a good source of photons. Uh, what's a good source of, of massive particles? How do you split a beam? How do you reflect it? How do you detect it? And those are all, all technical details. Okay, so for a more complex molecule, like rubidium, which has a mass of 85 AMU, and our room temperature velocity of about 240 meters per second, we have a much higher mass, and that leads to a much smaller wavelength than that order of magnitude calculation I did on the board. So 20 picometers. So you can imagine more and more massive elements giving you uh, lower and lower wavelengths. You can also heat them up to get velocities that are much higher than that. No, not really. Um, the problem is, again, that the pulses would damage whatever they're going through. So if you're going to generate them in, in, uh, in some material, you're going to damage the material as soon as the pulse gets generated. Damage it or just absorb the pulse, one of the two. Well, you can certainly generate 266. 266 nanometers is frequently, frequently created. Um, but the re so the regions of the spectrum, you have infrared, near-infrared, right? and then the visible, the ultraviolet, sometimes ultraviolet A, ultraviolet B, and then there's vacuum ultraviolet, which you'll see VUV. The reason the term vacuum is used is because light of that wavelength can't go through anything. So you can really only use it in vacuum. So you can't. But, I mean, you certainly, x-rays exist, right? And certainly gamma rays exist. There's examples of, of shorter wavelength optical photons. They're just not so useful in experiments because they're not easily manipulated. Okay, so the wavelength is shorter. Does that result in better sensitivity? Um, we've seen that it may. There's reason to think that uh, there could be an advantage there. Um, in practice right now, that's not the case. So we have to look at the, um, the ability to resolve changes in the intensity that's observed. And if you're able to eliminate all the different sources of noise in an experiment, all the technical sources of noise, what you'll be left with is the shot noise, which is the inherent quantum fluctuations of the, the beam itself. If you have a stream of particles um, and they obey Poissonian statistics, which, uh, which certainly photons do, then their arrival time at the detector is going to be randomly distributed. So there may be an instant time where you have multiple photons arriving, 
later instant time where you have fewer photons arriving, so there's some intensity noise. Just due to the uh, random nature of arrival time of the photons. And that limits your sensitivity. This is a sensitivity in phase to 1 over the square root of the number of photons you detect. So the more photons you detect, the better your phase noise, the lower your phase noise. And because you're averaging random arrival times, it's, it's sort of like a least, it's sort of like a random walk. If you take n steps, the expected distance you travel is the square root of n steps. So same thing here. As you increase the number of photons detected, you're averaging out the fluctuations, but you only average out as uh, 1 over the square root of n. So the number of photons detected depends on the power. Right? The greater the power, the more photons you will detect. The power times the time over which you measure is the energy that you observe. And if you divide that energy by the energy per photon, which is h bar omega or hc over lambda, you can get the total number of photons detected. So here that's done in a, I haven't included the, the length of time. This is a photon rate of about 10 to the 18 photons per second you would have in a 100 milliwatt visible laser. So a power of 100 milliwatts, a wavelength, picking a wavelength 500 nanometers in the center <coughs> of the visible spectrum, you get about 10 to the 18 photons per second. A one second measurement would have 10 to the 18 photons. A 10 second measurement would have 10 to the 17. 10 to the 19, sorry. Um, Okay, so in one second, if this is the number of photons per second, in a one second measurement, which we normalize our measurements, when we talk about noise, we always normalize the measurement duration to one second. So in a one second measurement, our sensitivity would be, our, our sensitivity to length we're operating on the most sensitive part of the interference curve, where the slope of this um, position versus intensity graph is the greatest, if this graph represents um, I out is cosine squared of delta phi, the slope of that is sine 2 delta phi and has a maximum of 1. I can normalize this by I in. So the slope of this line right here is 1. And that means a change in length, dl, produces a relative change in the output power 
of um, dl times the phase of dl is kdl, which is 2 pi dl over lambda. Um, manipulating this expression, so di out divided by i in, and dividing both sides by i in, and multiply both sides by d phi. And if I'm operating at the point where the slope is a maximum, this is the slope. It has a maximum value of 1. And so I'm saying uh, this left side is equal to d phi, and d phi is equal to kdl. Okay. That's where dl is the round trip path length. So phi is equal to KL. So phi is a phase accumulated by the light. It looks like KL. K is a wave number. L is the path length the light travels. This is assuming it's in vacuum. Otherwise, I just use the wave number in the material. So DL, I solve for. my minimum change in uh, length that I can detect depends on the fractional change in intensity that I can detect times lambda over 2 pi. using this, if I know the phase uncertainty due to shot noise is given by this expression, then I can just say that's related to the length uncertainty by um, Within a numerical factor, I can say dl, so that should be an approximate. I don't include the 2 pi here. Um, but dl is lambda d phi. So if I can calculate the, um, shot, the phase noise due to shot noise, for a given wavelength, I can relate that to a, a detectable change in length of one arm. So in one second, what is the 
phase noise of a shot noise limited laser beam using these numbers. So 10 to the 18 is the number of photons in one second. So plug that in here. This becomes 10 to the minus 9. It says the phase noise is 10 to the minus 9. That'd be radians per root hertz. The term per root hertz always means in a one second measurement. Okay, so 10 to the minus 9 radians. That's how much phase jitter I have just due to the, the uh, photons arriving at random times. And that corresponds to a length change of about, is that an atometer? Femtometer, about one femtometer, 10 to the minus 15 meters. I'm, oh, sorry, 10 to the minus 18 meters. I'm skipping ahead. Okay, so about 10 to the minus 18 meters is what sensitivity you can detect with with the laser, positional sensitivity. So that's pretty good, at least in terms of uh, length scales of small objects. How big is an atom? It's an angstrom, 10 to the minus 10. So that's 100 million times smaller than an atomic, typical atomic size. Neil? So yes, that's um, an object that's in what's called the uh, least uncertainty state and is in a what we call a coherent state is one where the uncertainty is equally spaced between momentum and position. So that's another way of interpreting this. Um, So here we're talking about photons. So the photons have an uncertainty in their momentum or an uncertainty in their wavelength, if you like, that gives rise to an uncertainty in how well we can measure the, the length. It's just an alternative way of thinking about it. Um, and we're not going to have a chance to talk about it, but there are some interesting tricks you can do where you can introduce correlations between the uncertainty in momentum, or the momentum and the position, um, to cause the uncertainty not to be equal in the two quadratures. It's called squeezing. And it allows you to get better than shot noise limited sensitivity. Um, it's difficult to do. It's, there's no experiments, to my knowledge, that use this right now to improve the sensitivity of their measurements. There's there's research into this that shows it's possible, but the technical requirements to achieve it make it uh, very difficult. And uh, advanced LIGO will be the first experiment that I'm aware of that will use squeezing to improve the sensitivity. Okay, so with 
lasers, 10 to the minus 18 meters is what you can get. Um, for atomic beams, the big advantage of atomic beams is their shorter wavelength. The big disadvantage is the lower flux you get from available sources. So current atomic optics experiments have an atomic flux of about 10 to the 9 atoms per second. If you compare that to photons coming out of a modest power laser, it's 10 to the 18 photons per second. Um, it's nine orders of magnitude less. Okay, so when we plug that in up here, we get a phase sensitivity that's four and a half orders of magnitude worse. The wavelength was two orders of magnitude better. So if we combine something that's 100 times better and another property that's 30,000 times worse, uh, we get a net reduction in sensitivity. So the equivalent length sensitivity of an atomic system is about uh, three orders of magnitude worse. So in order for atomic interferometers to work as well as optical interferometers, they need much higher atomic fluxes in order to get the sensitivity up. Um, until there is sources, and, and there hasn't been much development of atomic sources at this point, um, but until there are high flux atomic sources, then the usefulness of atom interferometers is likely going to be for measuring gravity. Because unlike optical interferometers, photon or massive particles interact with gravity. So you can make measurements not of a moving mirror, but you can make measurements of a gravitational field that's acting differently on one arm than the other. You can't do that with, with photons, they're just not affected by, by a gravitational field. So the more particles we have from the second, Yeah. Okay, so some issues with what we call atomic and molecular optics, or AMO. Um, we said that in order to decrease the wavelength, you could use higher mass, atom, mass, atom, higher mass atoms or higher velocity atoms, hotter atoms. Um, the reason I mentioned rubidium in the slide, rubidium and cesium are two alkali atoms. Alkali atoms are in the same column as hydrogen. So they have one free electron in their outer shell. So they're very well understood atoms. And rubidium, cesium have higher, much higher masses, obviously, than hydrogen. So it's, it's a way to increase the mass of your atom and still have a pretty good handle on theoretically how it should be behaving. Um, the problem with increasing the velocity is that you have a bunch of atoms bouncing into each other. Every time they collide, there's decoherence. It's the same thing that we have with, with, uh, with pressure broadening in an atomic system. Due to the collisions, you get a broadening effect. Uh, same thing happens with, uh, with the atomic wave packets, and that limits the coherence of the beams. If you have a broad frequency bandwidth, you have limited coherence length. And so any interferometer experiment um, loses its ability to detect these fringes when the path lengths aren't within the coherence length. Okay, so ideally you want a monochromatic source, single frequency for uh, matter particles. That means well-defined energy, well-defined velocity. Um, and that's 
more difficult to do at higher temperatures. So cooling is typically required. Ideally, what you'd like to do is have a Bose-Einstein condensate, which is as much as possible the matter analog of a laser. It's a bunch of atoms that are in the same quantum state. So they are all coherent. And they're not bumping into each other because they're all superposed. Okay, so that's been, been done in the past 10 years or so. So there's reason to believe that some of these things that would make matter interferometers better um, you know, may someday come to fruition. So cooling the atoms, how do you do that? Uh, you want to do that to minimize the pressure broadening effects and then also to prepare a sample in a Bose-Einstein condensate. So Bose-Einstein condensate we can think of as just a system that's at absolute zero. At absolute zero, everything's in the ground state. The ground state is the same for all the atoms, so they're all in the same state. So this is where the laser spectroscopy comes in. Um, one of the key components to cooling an optical system is what we call optical molasses. And this is what uh, Stephen Chu won the Nobel Prize for in 97. Um, the idea is that you have some atom or atomic system that you want to cool. And you illuminate it from all sides. In practice, that typically means six, three pairs of forward and counterpropagating along each coordinate axis and Cartesian coordinates. Um, split off from the same laser. So these beams coming in from all six directions all have the exact same frequency. And that frequency is chosen to be a little bit below atomic resonance. The reason that you tune it below resonance, you might think, if, okay, if I'm talking about tuning the laser frequency and there's an atomic resonance, I probably want to tune on resonance. That's when I get some interaction. Um, if I tune slightly below resonance, what happens to this atom when it moves? It gets a Doppler shifter, or you, think, you can think of the light it sees getting Doppler shifted. And the light going towards it it's going to get Doppler shifted up in frequency. It's going to move on to resonance. Okay, so imagine the atom moving down. It's going to preferentially absorb this beam as opposed to the other beams. And when it absorbs it, for each photon that it absorbs, it gets a momentum kick of h bar k. Okay, so it absorbs a photon going up, and it gets a momentum kick up that slows it down. Okay, now it puts it in an excited state and it will decay back to the ground state. After all, this is a cool system that we're talking about. So it will decay to the ground state by giving off fluorescence. Which direction does the fluorescence go? Isotropic. It's isotropic. So if you just said to say there was one photon being fluoresced, it would just be random. So it will get a momentum kick from that as well. And if that fluorescence photon is upwards, then it'll get a momentum kick up from the absorbing and it'll get a momentum kick down from the emission and it will continue on its original path. If the momentum kick is downwards, that's going to slow it down even further. And if the momentum kick is transverse, it's going to have minimal effect on the velocity. So what happens is, on average, the fluorescing photons, um, well, the absorbing photons 
slow it down more than the fluorescing photons will speed it back up. So the, the, the sum process has a net effect of slowing it down. That's because the fluorescent photons have a higher wavelength than the absorbent photons? No, even if, it's, even if it fluoresces the same, same wavelength, so it gets the same magnitude of momentum kick, the point is, is that the input kick is always going to be in the direction at which it's moving just due to the geometry of these illuminating beams. So it always gets kicked first in the direction that it's moving, and then it gets a second kick in a random direction. So one kick that slows it down, and one that does, on average, nothing. Um, and so that will cool the system considerably to millikelvin. So that's typically used after um, conventional cooling gets these uh, gets that atom to a point where it can interact with the beams for, for a reasonable amount of time. How would you know temperature? You know its temperature by measuring the fraction of the atoms in an excited state. And then just using Boltzmann distribution to fit the temperature to that. Okay, so. That's just cooling. And a requirement of reaching Bose-Einstein condensate is cooling down essentially to absolute zero. And this is, this is the technique that allowed researchers to first do that. Um, so is there another question? How do you Well, so typically what happens is um, you may not know. It's not like sticking a thermometer and being able to make an in-situ measurement. You, have to, might you might have to destroy your system in order to measure it. But we've talked about a number of different ways of, of measuring the spectrum. Right? And any absorption spectrum is going to have an absorption strength that depends on the population of the ground state. And so you might just... Um, you might just have a laser that's tuned to a transition from the first excited state to some upper state. Right? And you should be always be getting some amount of absorption um, just due to the thermal population of the lower state. If you cool it down, you reduce that. Um, you might, you'd see the absorption decrease. And it, it would become transparent when there's no population in the first excited state. And if that's achieved, and the system's in thermal dynamic equilibrium, you could say that it's then in the ground state. So that So that would want, you'd want that to be some transition from the ground state to anything. Yes, because there would always be population in the ground state. Well, it might be a, a seventh beam that probes the sample. Um, there's other ways to do it, too. Um, one of the ways is you, you've cooled all these atoms down, um, and they're basically in a vacuum chamber. So except for the atoms themselves, uh, you have an evacuated region. You can turn off your trap. So there's some uh, magnets and coils that are, that are um, levitating this matter in space. You turn off that trap and allow them to fall. And as they fall, they're not constrained. Their thermal velocities will cause them to spread out. 
Right? So if you measure the size of the, the wave function cloud as it falls, you can measure how fast it's dispersing out. And so that's, that's how temperatures are conventionally measured. Well, that's how, how many low temperatures are, are measured. So you're saying, um, you, well, you have, a sta- you have a standing wave. So what you have is a standing wave. And you're talking about an anti-node of the standing wave. And so... Um, I haven't thought about this, but I'm off the top of my head. My suspicion is that the molecules are driven to a node of the standing wave. That's certainly what would happen if you put, if you like take sugar or something, you put it on a piece of wood and you vibrate it. If you get or a drum head, I guess it probably makes better sounds than wood. But if you vibrate it, the, mo- the, the, the molecules will move to a node, so you're getting pushed off the antinodes. I'm guessing that's what would happen here as well. Okay, so that is the cooling part, and that's, uh, that's required for getting a source that has a reasonable coherence length. Okay, there are other elements of our, of our uh, interferometer. The next thing that, the, that we have is the beam splitter. So how do you make a beam splitter? There's a couple different ways. Again, one of them uses spectroscopy. The other doesn't. Um, the idea is, and we've seen this before, in fact, I think we may have even seen this slide before because I talked about gravitational gradiometer as an application uh, in the first month or so of class. But we had worked out the Einstein A and B coefficients for uh, stimulated absorption and, and, uh, and emission and then used those to determine the probability of an atom, a two-level atom, being in its excited state or its ground state after being illuminated by some radiation for a given length of time. So without doing any of the derivation, let me remind you of the result. If A is the amplitude of the wave packet of the ground state, then A squared is the probability of finding the atom in the ground state. And if you tune the frequency of the laser that's illuminating that, to the Rabi frequency, then assuming all of the population starts off in the ground state, or the, the probability of finding the ground state is initially 100%, then after a time t, the probability just goes as cosine squared. And then if it's a two-level system, if it's not in the ground state, it has to be in the other state. So the excited state has a probability of sine squared, total probability of 1. And so if you've prepared your ensemble of atoms in the ground state, you know they're in the ground state because they're at low temperature. And then these atoms come into some interaction region, you illuminate them with a pulse of light that has a particular length of time t that causes omega t over 2 
to be um, well, omega t over 2 is pi over 4. Omega t is pi over 2. So long enough so that, such that this is 45 degrees and this is 45 degrees. Then you get equal components of the upper state and the lower state. We call that a pi over 2 pulse because omega t is pi over 2. Well, they are half, it has a 50% probability of being in an excited state. And so it's not just, well, we've added energy to the system. Right? Half of it, it has a 50% probability of having absorbed a photon. Right? And if it absorbs a photon, it gets a momentum kick. So if you're illuminating it with a laser from below, then it has 50% probability of absorbing that photon. And the atom moving to the right would get a kick at that point and then move in a trajectory like this. And you'd have an absorbed or a higher energy atom moving up and to the right. If it doesn't absorb, it's just going to continue moving on. And so the fact that it does absorb um, changes its trajectory, and that allows you to create a beam splitter. That's, so we don't have to worry about it. That's, that's the purpose here, is the two energy states. We're not so interested in having two different energy states. We're interested in separating, separating the beam to the 50% probability, and that's what we're doing. And of course, you could tune the, the length of time to get some different probability ratio or different branching ratio in this, in this uh, split. OK, so we do need to keep track of the fact that one of these beams has a different quantum state than the other beam. Um, but they're physically separated, so they're going to sample different, different things which is the purpose of the interferometer, is to separate the beams so they can sample different environments, interact differently. So that's one way of creating a beam splitter. There's others. One of the ways it can be done is using a crystal. So we have angstrom spacing between atoms in a crystal. And therefore, they will act, because of the periodicity of the structure, they'll act as a diffraction grating for, you know, they diffract x-rays. You hear about x-ray crystallography. It's a way to measure the structure of a crystal. So these same wavelengths that we have for matter waves can diffract from a crystal. And you can use the different diffracted beams as different output beams of a beam splitter. So that's another way to do this. <coughs> um, one advantage is its simplicity. Rather than having a laser that you have to pulse of, of a particular length and make sure it's focused on the sample and do all of this, uh, you just have a piece of material that your matter has to hit. Now, one of the disadvantages is that this crystal, because it's physical matter, might be vibrating around. So you're probably inside of a vacuum chamber. The vacuum chamber is probably being pumped by some mechanical pumps that are vibrating. Usually, people take, make an effort to isolate those from the chamber itself. But if this moves by just an angstrom, that's a full, you know, it's a full change of the lattice. It's a full lattice spacing. And so if you want a phase sensitivity that's you know, a billion times less than or a phase sensitivity of something like 10 to the minus 5 uh, radians, 
then you need this, the motion of it, or this object to be stable to within 10 to the 5 of the lattice spacing. So it needs to be very well isolated. Uh, you might do this, for example, if you're flying in a spacecraft. You're proposing experiments to be done in space. Um, this might be a, a convenient beam splitter. You don't have a mechanical pump pumping in a vacuum system. Otherwise, you're probably using the spectrographic method. Okay, so there's beam splitters. Now mirrors. One way to make a mirror is, again, interaction with the laser beam. So we, again, have a laser of a particular pulse length. This time we call it a pi pulse because it makes this argument pi and it converts population from the ground state to the excited state and the upper state to the ground state. So it just flips the state of the two-level system. And as a result, anything that was in the ground state becomes the excited state. Anything in the excited state becomes the ground state. And in the process, if our pulse was shining up, it's going to give a momentum kick to the ground state. The pulse was shining down, it's going to give a momentum kick. Here it's interacting with the excited state. It gives it a momentum kick down that compensates for the momentum kick up that this, this path got when it interacted with our beam splitter. And so this is a common configuration for atomic interferometers. It's called a pi over 2, pi, pi over 2 sequence. And what it is is it's an atom coming in. It's being illuminated by uh, a field that causes it to split. And then these pi pulses come and switch the quantum states of the two fields and cause them to recombine. And then at this point, if you don't do anything, they'll just pass right through each other. But if you put another pi over 2 pulse here, you can recombine them into a single beam. Charlotte? Yeah, it's, it's the same. You can think of it as a single atom passing through this interferometer. And we can see here um, a classical experiment with matter waves. This is an electron source illuminating a double slit. So we have Young's double slit experiment. And we should have interference on some detection plane over here. And what you see is if you start with a low flux of electrons, so it's like individual electrons, and this is the classic experiment, the difference between matter and, and, and particle nature of photons as well, but um, if, if a single photon or a single mat, uh, electron couldn't interfere with itself, if you just send one at a time through here, you might expect it to travel in one of the two paths and just get sort of a broad distribution, but as the distribution builds up, you see these interference fringes. Okay, so the path traces out this little trapezoid, and if you have some interaction here that's different than the interaction there, then you can get a different phase shift on the two beams. Um, if you don't, if, if the uh, paths encounter the same environment, and then you recombine them with a pi over 2 pulse here, you're going to get all of the light, or all of the light, all of the matter returning to the ground state. If you get a net phase shift of one path relative to the other of 
pi over 2, then when they get recombined, they're going to be recombined into the excited state traveling up like this. Neil? Well, you would have detectors here and here. Oh, you have two. Yeah. Um, so we have to make sure that path went from pi over 2 approach to pi over 2 approach to create the kid right out of the state. And then what's the emit? What's the correct point of pi over 2 approach? That's true. Yes. Okay, so that's one form of a mirror. Another form of a mirror, the two other forms of mirrors that I've seen. One is, again, crystals. So, crystal surface. Well, so typical optical mirror is just a piece of material that you polish and you get reflection off of the surface. Um, one of the problems with using matter waves is much smaller wavelength, so you have to polish it much smoother. It's the roughness has to be smaller than a wavelength in order to avoid, uh, in order for it to specularly reflect. And so that's not really practical for typical polishing, but you can cleave a crystal on a crystal plane. And so a good example of that is silicon. You know, silicon you can get in giant pools here in the industry, and you can buy for you know, a few dollars wafers that are, are big and cut along a single crystal. And you, that has a, a smoothness that's on the order of less than an angstrom because of the fact that it's a crystal plane. And then you can use it at grazing incidents. And essentially, everything reflects at grazing incidents. So um, you'll get a high reflective. You just get basically the matter bouncing off of the, the surface. You get a really smooth surface. The other type of mirror you can use is a gravitational one. And essentially send the atoms up and have them fall back down. Um, at grazing incidents, it wouldn't do that. Yeah, you might be able. You might be able to. That that picture might work. Um, You're asking questions that are beyond my knowledge of the. Because you know, light, you know, in the process, light is like, oh, light gets absorbed, light gets absorbed, light gets absorbed, you're fine, it's reflected. When it comes to like actual atoms, it's kind of like, how do they get reflected? Well, I mean, you can certainly think of it in terms of billiard balls, right? You line up some billiard balls with some spacing between them, and you know, you can you can roll a ball between them. But if you do it at grazing incidents, there's no there's there's no chance of it getting between them. No. Um, I suspect that there's more sophisticated models than that, but if, if that works for you, that works for me. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about the types of different phase shifts we could see and why you might build this type of uh, device. So the phase shift, for any, any wave that is oscillating at a frequency, frequency is just the time rate of change of the phase. So the phase is just the integral of the frequency with respect to time. If the frequency is constant, this is just omega t. And so the phase would evolve you know, in, in however long you measure, whatever, whatever time that you're integrating this over, just omega times that time. 
And if we don't assume that the frequency is constant, we can write it in terms of the energy of the molecule in Planck's constant. So again, from the energy of a molecule, is, or the energy of a photon or a particle is h bar omega. Omega is e over h bar. The time of flight in the interferometer is related to how far the, the uh, particle travels. So let dr be the distance it travels. And I put c here, probably by mistake. That should be the velocity of the particle. Right? It's not necessarily moving at the speed of light, but this shows that I work more in optics than I do in AMO. Um, okay, so why might two different paths have different energies associated with them? MGH, yeah. So the gravitational potential energy could be different. And it's, it's literally, it's just MGH. And that path that I drew, if that was in a vertical plane, this trapezoidal path, this excited state is going to have a higher potential energy than the ground state, which is traveling in this path. And as a result, it acquires a phase shift faster. Uh, for current state-of-the-art experiments, about a meter. So the wavelength is shorter because it has higher potential energy. So it acquires more phase as it travels the, the same distance. Well, so this is drawn in a vertical plane, and this represents trajectories in the vertical plane, so that you have a different, different uh, potential energy there. If you did it horizontally, you wouldn't get an energy level, energy difference. Due to, at least you wouldn't get an energy difference due to the vertical component of gravity. Then you could start to be sensitive to differences in the variance in G. Um, but that's a much less, sen less a smaller effect. But isn't there one when up has a higher energy because it makes Yes, it has a higher internal energy. Well, so it's an excited state here, and then it gets a pi pulse, and then it's in the ground state here. This one's in the ground state, it gets a pi pulse, it's in the excited state. So they both, the difference cancels out. Yes. Uh, we're following the particle through the interferometer. So if you no, we're not following through the interferometer. If we're following through the interferometer, kr dot omega t would be a constant. Is that the best way to say it? Um, yeah, I, I think the easiest way to say it is follow the particle such that it's always at the, at your coordinate axis is always following it. 
so that k.r is always constant. Just from an observer traveling along with the particle, it just sees fluctuation in time. Okay, so um, I mentioned that the gravitational field could produce this energy level difference. Here's typical sort of uh, from actual experiments type of geometry. The height difference is about a meter. The interaction time is about a second. The cool atoms have a uh, this kind of tells you they have a velocity on the order of a meter per second. Okay, so that's considerably less than the hundreds of meters per second that we're talking about it for uh, higher energy atoms. And if you evaluate an energy shift of MGH, right? so MGH, the mass is going to be small, because these are single particles, but the G and the H are sort of you know, laboratory scale. Um, you, if you evaluate this over about a second, you get 10 to the 10 radians. So that's how many cycles it goes through. And that's how many more cycles it, that the upper path travels than the lower path. So what you're going to see is small changes in G. So you wouldn't use this to measure absolute value of G. But you could, for instance, compare your readout with your instrument here to your instrument over there. And that would tell you something about the difference between G at those two places. That's why this is called the gravity gradiometer. It doesn't measure G. Well, all atoms are universal. That's why atoms are used. But cesium is used because it's an alkali atom. So it's well understood. Charlotte? Yes. Yeah. Well, one second is the time it takes an object to fall a meter. So that's. Um, that's probably another reason why the alkali atoms are used. You want a very long upper state lifetime. That's why cesium is used for the atomic clock. It has a very long upper state lifetime, which corresponds to a small frequency uh, width to the line transition. I don't know offhand what, the, uh, what those line widths are. OK, so that's an example of a device that uses this effect. Um, and so we did read an article earlier in the semester about this gravitational gradiometer, where two of these I think, are spaced at different heights. And the difference in little g between the two heights is measured. And I sh it's probably worth asking what the sensitivity of this is. Um, if the atomic flux is 10 to the 9 particles per second, um, then the shot noise in a one second measurement is
like 1 over 30,000. The phase is 10 to the 10. So the relative sensitivity is a uh, I don't think I wrote that right. I didn't write that. No, I didn't do. I didn't do. I didn't do this right. Something's wrong here. Let me do this differently. The relative change in G that you can measure times the total phase shift. Well, let me write it this way. Yeah. The relative ability to measure changes in G is equal to the relative uncertainty in the phase. All right, so yeah, so evaluating that. Why am I not? seeing the numbers I was expecting. Uh, well, when I worked it out before, I got 10 to the minus 6. And I got that by having 30,000 instead of 1 over 30,000. So I think I haven't had an error. It is, and it's beyond what the experiments are at, but they're not necessarily shot noise limited. But um, okay, so let's say that I do this correctly. It's about 10 to the minus 14. So you're measuring G, you know, 9.8, blah, 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 to 14 decimal places. Um, so it is super accurate. That's why you can use it to determine whether there's oil or rocks underneath, underneath you. Okay, um, a couple other parts. I mentioned uh, these low temperature sources of Bose-Einstein condensates would be ideal. Um, so Bose-Einstein condensate, when this is just, well, there's a little animated version. I didn't even realize that was animated when I was reviewing, <laughs> looking at the still slides. But this is the creation of a Bose-Einstein condensate in rubidium. It's another alkali atom. And this just shows the wave function collapsing to a single superposition, the superposition of all the atomic wave functions in an ensemble collapsing to a single wave function. So we can think of that as an atomic laser. One of the problems is, is that um, Unlike a traditional laser, you can't amplify. That would require adding atoms to the trap. But you, you essentially start with a certain number of atoms. You create the trap. Um, you can put about a million atoms in a trap with typical with uh, current technology. It takes about 10 seconds to do that. So that gives you a flux of about 10 to the 5 atoms per second on average. So the flux is even worse than it is in the, in the other cold sources. So the thermal fluxes. So just uh, a cold source, but not in a BEC. 
is still about 10,000 times greater than that. So, um, right. So atom waves have very short wavelengths, which make them potentially useful for different interferometric uh, types of measurements. Right now, the flux of the sources isn't good enough to give high resolution. So you can think of it as you're getting a very, you have a very detailed, uh, you have a 10 megapixel camera, and you're taking pictures in the dark. You're going to get grainy pictures. Essentially, the state of the art right now. Um, but because matter interacts with gravity, they're still used uh, for probes of, of gravitational fields and such. Okay, so if you want the test um, immediately, or if you know when you want the test, you can come up and tell me now, and I can set it up to make it available to you at any particular point. Good question. Um, tomorrow, I'll be in. Um, I've class till 11.45 and I'll be in uh, let's see, before 10.30 and after 11.45 I'm available you can stop by my office um, Thursday I'll be in during the day and um, would it be useful for me to be in Wednesday night at class time since people, I know people are free Wednesday nights at class time? Would anybody be... If, you're, if you'd like to come talk to me, email me. I will make myself available. Okay? Um, and assume that I, can, I will be able to be in during normal class time. If nobody's interested, nobody emails me, then I probably won't be here. Okay? 